Open up your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, as we continue our verse-by-verse understanding of this important, encouraging, faith-preserving epistle, Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9. And Lord willing, we're going to look together today at verses 5 and 6. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Follow along as I read. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forevermore, be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them, which have been occupied therein. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Let's go to Him in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank You this day, O God. As we confess, You are the one, the true, and the living God. We confess, O Lord, that we are frail men and women made of dust. We are... Lord, but sinners who have been amazingly converted and saved by your sovereign grace. And so with that, Lord, we are humble creatures before your throne of majesty and mercy. And Lord, we are offering to you our thanksgiving for giving us the revelation of yourself in your preserved and pure word. And, O Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now to feed and to become, dear Lord, um, nutritionally, Lord, uh, filled with what it is in the spiritual meal that you have before us. Help us to grow. Give us open and palatable hearts to receive that which is spoken. And, Lord, protect us, we pray, as the brother just encouraged us from all error Help us, dear Lord, to not be easily deceived, but, dear Lord, to be guided by your Spirit and your Word. We thank you, Father. We thank you so much for this time that we have as brothers and sisters united in Jesus Christ to come and to worship you and to be able to open, to read, and study together your blessed Word. Oh, Father, hear our cries, we pray. Answer our prayers according to thy most holy wisdom. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we return once again to chapter 13. And as I read it, you noticed it reads as a bulleted point list of exhortations. And last week, we had the privilege of looking at marriage, the institution of marriage, but more specifically, Christian sexual ethics as they are to be exercised in marriage. And so we considered the marriage bed, and we considered marital intimacy. 
And now, right on the heels of the exhortation and considerations in verse 4, the inspired writer here we see goes into another exhortation, dealing this time not with marital intimacy, but dealing with material possessions and material wealth. That's why I said I was a little nervous when AJ was reading in our New Testament reading from 1 Timothy 6 that he was going to steal all of my material uh, because, well, you got the cliff note version there toward the end of that chapter in 1 Timothy of much of what we're going to be talking about today. I think it's helpful for us when we read chapter 13 to remind ourselves once again of what's going on here. It's wrong for us to look at chapter 13 and think, oh, this kind of reads like, and probably it is perhaps, just a a quick list of last-minute do's and don'ts in the Christian life that this inspired, hoary-head man wants to write in this epistle as he gets to the end. Just a a real quick, hey, important list, do's and don'ts that I want you to remember. And we, we can kind of miss the connection that these exhortations have with his overarching theme, which is helping these Christians not to apostatize, these professors of the faith that are in the visible church, but to help them make it unto the end, to fight the good fight, as A.J. was uh, admonishing us from the book of Philippians, unto the very end. Because if you notice, it's very interesting that he jumps with great ease, as if it were, from talking about marriage to now talking about finances, to now talking about material wealth. And many trusted theologians purport or put forward the idea that perhaps these exhortations in the overarching theme of helping professing Christians make it to the end are especially important because it is these types of vices, or shall we say these types of sins, that seem to manifest themselves greatly prior to one falling away from the faith or apostatizing. You recall in Esau, chapter 12, verse 6, uh, or 16, he uses Esau. And Esau's life was a very profane life. He was, of course, immoral in the use of his sexuality and his multiple wives he had. And he was, of course, uh, you could say, infatuated or in love with the things of this world. And so many put forward the idea that that's what the writer is doing here. He's warning these Christians that these things could potentially be the pathways, the roads that often lead to an apostate. And so with that said, these things are to be taken very seriously, especially by those who profess that they have been converted and they follow Jesus Christ. We know that the author has given the benefit of the doubt to all of the visible church. He has called them brethren. He's called them holy brethren. He's referred to them as the beloved. But he's writing this epistle in a general sense to everyone in the visible church, all the professors of faith, and he's standing back, i.e., Many people believe it was the Apostle Paul who penned this as inspired by the Spirit who also wrote 1 Timothy 6, right? And he was warning there because he's got a little history in the church life and he's standing back now and he's writing this in a general sense and he's saying, just from what I've noticed, these are some of the things that it seems it leads many professors who start off running a good race down the ditch of despondency, apathy, and eventually apostasy. And so, reminding ourselves of why these exhortations are here, we sense again the seriousness by which we want to approach them, right? Wanting them to teach us, instruct us, warn us as modern day professors of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not meant to take away from you the precious doctrine of justification. No, no, no. They're they're not meant to to make you see uh, every vice behind every little rock and have you walk in in a trepid fear, but in a balanced way. As Brother A.J. was admonishing us, as many of the apostles do in the New Testament, they're here to keep us balanced. There is never a point in the Christian life where we just walk around as if we're not in a war, as the young brother was just admonishing us, or in a spiritual battle. No, when the warning passages come up, Do not. The worst thing you can do is entering into the text and say, I got that box checked off of my theology, so this doesn't apply to me. No, no, no. 
Just let the text speak. Let it speak and allow the Spirit of God to use the text to help you examine your heart as I examine mine in my study. And so that's how we're coming into verses 5 and 6. We understand that these exhortations are to be gleaned as helps and aids as warnings of where these guardrails are for all of us to make it unto the very end. And so the message today is entitled, Beware of Greed and Anxiety. Beware of Greed and Anxiety. I think the text, uh, our passage is going to be verses 5 and 6. It naturally divides itself up very naturally. As you see in your sermon notes, you have an exhortation, you have a command, you have a promise, and praise be to God, verse number 6, the response to that promise is a confession. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So this is the roadmap. This is kind of the framework in how we're going to unpack these two verses. Let's begin with the exhortation. You see here in verse number 5. Let your conversation, the authorized version reads, be without covetousness. Now this is translated a couple different ways. Look at your sermon handout. Look at the NASB 95. It renders it this way. Make sure that your character, authorized version says conversation. The the NASB 95 says character. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Not free from covetousness, as the authorizers, but from the love of money. The ESV, another good translation of this passage here, keep your life, so it's not conversation or character, but your life free from the love of money. Well, you see it in your handout there. There are all three of these translations revolving around this one word. Uh, they're translating a conversation, character, and life, and it's dealing with or carries with it the idea, the way you think. And also, not just the way you think, but also the way you act and the way you live. And so with this in mind, this exhortation, which is a prohibition, right? Let it be without a love of money. Let it be without covetousness, your character, your conversation, your life. It has to do with two things. The way that we think about money, the way that we think about financial possessions, and also what we do with our money and what we do with our possessions. In the plainest sense, as you have in your notes, the exhortation is simply this, that the followers of Jesus Christ, who he's writing to, they must not allow their hearts and their minds to be set on material things more than spiritual things. And furthermore, if they have that inward frame of mind, that my ultimate goal, as A.J. was saying, is the fight, the spiritual things that God's called me to do, if they have that inward reality, as we see here, understanding the translations, conversation, character, life, it ought to manifest itself outwardly, right? So let this whole being of you Think inwardly and also react outwardly in your actions that you are free from covetousness or a love of money. And that's very simply what the word in the Greek translated authorized version covetousness means. It really simply means love of money. That's why the modern translations have it rendered love of money instead of covetousness. Such love of money, such covetousness, such affections toward money and possessions, he knows is dangerous, and furthermore, it's inconsistent. It's inconsistent with a true Christian profession. Why do we know this? Well, all over the Bible, we see markers of those who are identified as being outside of the New Covenant community who are referred to as those who are lovers of possessions, lovers of money and covetousness. For instance, Luke 16, 13 through 15, a love of money and possessions is what marked out the Pharisees. You guys know who the Pharisees are in the New Testament. There are those who had a lot of outward religious talk. They had a lot of outward religious actions. But inwardly, they ultimately were in love with what? This world. Its earthly treasures. What they could gain. Whether it was the respect of men, the respect of others, position in a hierarchical religious system, or whether or and or what it was their religious system could get to, give to them materially. 
covetousness and a love of money is what marked those according to 2 Timothy 3.8 who of a corrupt mind were disapproved of concerning the faith. And then as we read this morning, which is perhaps the clearest warning against the love of money that Brother AJ read, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and they pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Brothers and sisters, we gather from these texts and others that we could go to that the love of money at best is very damaging to one's faith and at worst could be utterly destructive. I think that's why, as A.J. pointed out in his reading, that the love of money is a warning against those who are to pursue the office of a pastor, teacher, or elder. They're to be free from the love of money. They are to be from, free from the love of filthy luger, material possessions. And we're going to see in a moment why that's so important. Now at this point, just saying that before we go any further in the first part of the exhortation in verse 5a, let your conversation, let your life, your character be free of love money. Let's not miss the thrust of the exhortation. Okay? And to do that, it's helpful to say this is, not, this is what the text is not saying. All right? So let's keep with the thrust of it by just recognizing two things of what the text not saying. I give it in your notes. The prohibition that we see in verse 5 is not a prohibition to desire nicer, more comfortable, or more reliable things such as a vehicle if you can afford it. But if your life, your identity, in some way your self-worth is consumed with what vehicle you own or what other people see you driving, then it is potentially the root of covetousness lurching at your door. And, and that could be applied, beloved, in a lot of different ways in our lives. So the prohibition is not to have something nice, but the prohibition is don't let the nice thing control you, your identity, or what other people think of you. Now, if I have to be honest, when I was a teenager, I had a big problem with this, right? Because of the peer pressure. I come from a poor family. Right? So we went to pay less to get our tennis shoes and they weren't Nike and they weren't name brand. And it actually bothered me. I actually would go in school and be embarrassed about what I'm wearing. Why? Because popular culture, most societies, especially at that age group, is revolving around the fact of covetousness. You've got to have the name brand. I mean, can I just show my age here and talk about the IOU sweatshirts that everybody used to wear? I'm looking at you guys because you're about the same age. I don't know. Anybody, that was the thing where I went to school, you know. I mean, if you had that, then hey, you're in the kid, cool kids club, right? And so I wanted one of those. I, I would think about ways to get one. Why? Because it would add to my identity. It, it controlled, you see, my affections, that material possession. Without it, I was less. I wasn't content. Somehow or another, I wasn't happy. It affected my joy. It affected my completeness as a person, you see. Well, friends, the exhortation is prohibiting that. If, if, if you're, what you own, if what you don't own is controlling you like that, covetousness, a love of possessions, a love of wealth could be lurching at your heart's door. Okay? Secondly, it's not a prohibition to exercise the biblical principle of prudence and saving for the future. Okay? So you're not a covetous person if you're saving and preparing for when you get older and you can't work anymore is what I'm trying to say. But if you're placing such future financial preparations over and above your present financial responsibilities to the Lord and to his people, then you have reason to examine yourself. How would this practically look? Well, it would look this way. Uh, you know, each week I get a paycheck. Part of my paycheck goes into a retirement fund. But something happens at my local church. Perhaps the family's house burns down. And whatever reason, they don't have insurance. Whatever reason, they need help, right? If I question whether or not I can't skip a little bit of contributions to my weekly future retirement preparations, which is a biblical uh, principle, to help this family... 
Friends, I have reason to examine myself if I fully understand what the purpose of my finances and God gives them to me is for, you see. There may be a misguided love of money and what it's doing for me emotionally, etc., rather than doing what Galatians 6.10 plainly commands me to do with everything that I own. And that is to help when, I, when there's time of help and need, especially the household of God. This exhortation is not condemning, let me be clear, possessions or money. It's not. Its warning is about the subtle, the oftentimes undetectable power that these things can, ev- can eventually have over us. That's what it's warning against. It's not warning about material possessions. It's not warning about not uh, warning you or exhorting you to not have wealth or money. It's the subtle, oftentimes undetectable power. That's where the word love comes from. You know, love's a power. It can control you and make you do some crazy things and think some crazy things too. The power of these things is what is being warned against. To be very clear, the exhortation is not condemning those things in and of themselves, but it is condemning what? The love of those things. I know this is probably hard for you to imagine, but uh, pastors, there's, there's a couple topics in the Bible that pastors are, it's difficult for pastors to teach upon. And money's one of them. Uh, anytime you get to a point where you've got to unpack you know, money and all that, you know, pastors, it's a little difficult, and it's understandably so. Because they feel as though they're going to be misunderstood as maybe jockeying for more pay. I mean, I don't think that's so much the case here at our church. But, but pastors have talked to me about this. This is true. They think that, you know, oh, the, the congregation, if I really press the issue, they're going to think I'm just trying to jockey for more pay or my ministerial ambitions, you know, or something like that. And so that misunderstanding then causes them to kind of fumble the ball a little bit when they come to exhortive passages like this about greed, about covetousness, about the way we use our money, so forth and so on. And that's really unfortunate because the scriptures speak a lot, a lot about money. Just as the Bible probed, did you guys feel that last week? Was I the only one? I talked to one brother this week, and he felt a little probed. Thank God I wasn't the only one. Did you notice how last week when we were talking about marital intimacy, that the the Bible probed into our marital beds? Well, just as it probes into the most secret places of our lives, our marital bed, it probes into our wallets as well. Just as the scripture warns us about the ditches to watch out for in the use of our sexuality, here also it warns us about the ditches to watch out for with the use of our money, our wealth, and our possessions. And brothers and sisters, before I move on, I want us to say this has a particular emphasis for us, a particular value for us who live in the United States. It's not a secret that the poorest Christian living in the United States is far wealthier than most Christians who live in other regions around the world. That's no secret. Now, beloved, I don't make that statement to give you a guilt trip. I don't make that statement to manipulate anyone toward a particular desired end that I'm trying to guide anyone toward. I'm just stating the obvious of how this text has a particular emphasis or value for us as American Christians. In a culture, in a context where... Admittedly, despite our ever-growing taxation upon our income, and it does seem to be ever-growing, we still actually have the ability to earn a good living. Notice I said we have the ability. <laughs> Not everyone takes advantage of that ability and opportunity, but you still have it. You can still tuck away some money. Not as much as we perhaps would like, but we're still able to do it. Right? We still are able to accumulate possessions. We are able to save for the future and live a rather comfortable life. And so I only make those points to ask us to allow the text to press upon us, especially in the West, a level of honesty with ourselves regarding this exhortation. Do we honestly use our resources responsibly, number one, according to the scriptures, and as part of that responsible stewardship Do we use it to the degree to contribute to God's work and what he's doing around us? Or does the love of money, its perceived security, I I use the word perceived intentionally, we'll get that at the moment with contentment, it's it's an elusive perception, 
Does the love of money and its perceived security make us reluctant to give? Or when we do give, we do it in such a way that we hardly feel the giving is sacrificial at all. Now, I don't know about you, but it's somewhat interesting to me as I kind of transition into our, our second point here. It's somewhat interesting to me that he's even talking about money. It was, I, I asked this last week, why in, why in the overarching theme and you know, why is he getting down into the marriage bed? You know, he's trying to make it a, talk, encourage people to remember what Christ has done. He's trying to encourage people who they are in Christ and keep you know, your eye on the cross. And he's bringing up this difficult subject of in, marital intimacy. And here he's bringing up again the subject of financial, uh, personal financial covetousness and, and, and the love of money. Well, to help us better appreciate why he's doing it, what he's trying to develop here, remember that in chapter 10, verse 32, he gave them a commendation. He, he commended these brothers and sisters. He said there, he said, in the former days, you were, he like was congratulating them. He said, in the former days, I was so glad to see that you were joyfully willing to lose material possessions. Why? He says over there in chapter 10, verse 13, because you remembered that you had a better possession awaiting you in Christ. So at this point, knowing what he said in Hebrews 10, what could be taking place here, very probable, is that in the first wave of persecutions, many of these people in this first century church, in this exact church, believed to be in around the area of Italy, Jewish Jews that were scattered and ran away from their home, it's very likely that in that first wave of persecution, many, if not all of them, lost all of their possessions. Maybe they had a few left, the clothes on their backs, sort of say, and they ran out of their homes. And it could be that he's wanting to say, hey, I want to caution you. I want to put a warning up to you because you may have, in reaction to that misunfortune and that type of persecution, you may begin to foster a frame of mind. You may begin to develop a mental disposition that when you gain things now, after that first wave is over, that you're going to want to retain them at all costs. You see, perhaps some of them began to acquire, once again, some things that they lost. And that's a good thing, right? You lose your home, well, the next thing you're going to want to do is get a roof over your family's head, amen? And you're going to want to try to prepare so you're not caught off guard for the ups and downs of life and you're better prepared to help others, right? But he doesn't want them to miss that their life's chief end and ultimate goal wasn't to retain material things and wealth. It was, be, it was to be prepared to give it all up once again if God's providence demanded it. That's why he's talking about covetousness. That's why he's talking about money. Think about the context. Because if he doesn't warn them, and this sort of shift in their heart goes unchecked, it potentially can make shipwreck their faith and a good conscience because instead of being prepared to give up everything in order to stay faithful to Christ, they would shrink back from his calling and would be no longer to sing with the saints Take my silver, take my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. So you see, beloved, their earthly treasures have the potential. Doesn't necessitate it. But he understands the power of material possessions and wealth. It has the potential to blind them to the unseen realm and the unseen treasures that they have in Christ. And when we take all of this into consideration, it seems clear that the purpose of the exhortation was to keep their eyes of faith on their heavenly treasures. Although their, eyes, although their physical eyes may watch as their physical treasures vanish away before their very eyes through persecution. This writer, if it is the Apostle Paul, knew very well the truths of what Paul wrote in Acts 15.22 that they, through much tribulation, must enter into the kingdom of God. So if a, if, if a professing Christian is so attached to his material possessions and the physical comfortability and the perceived security that they afford, then such a professing Christian who has that love to those attachments well may be tempted 
in a moment of spiritual weakness, combined with persecution, perhaps your life, to do whatever it takes to retain such possessions, even if it means to compromise a little bitty bit on the faith of Jesus Christ. So when Nero, soon after this epistle is written, would come along, who's going to be the one? Who amongst us in the professing community of God's people this morning is going to be the one? When such persecution may come, and you're asked as if it were, can come in many shapes, ways, and forms, to give a pinch to Caesar, as if he is deity. And all of your material possessions, all the life of your family, everything is hanging on your decision whether you would do that. Oh, you see how important the love of money and being free from it is? Because in a moment of weakness, you'd be willing to convince yourself that, hey, it's just a little pinch. Because inwardly, I don't believe it. Even though outwardly testimony and the power of God's glory and, 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 and efficacious conversion in my life demonstrates to all the world that it's really no, no power at all. That's what it would demonstrate when the Christian would pinch it. Because everyone would see there's no power in the gospel. There's no truth. But when one was willing to die for it, what's the New Testament teach us? That was the seed that blossomed into the glorious church that we are all part of. They were willing to die for the truth. They were willing to say, as we sung in him, take my silver, take my gold, not a mite would I withhold. I don't have it in my notes, but it's very interesting that there's been this movement in the church. This is unique to us uh, in America. It's called the free church movement. And basically what it is, is it's... Um, reestablishing the jurisdiction of a free church of Jesus Christ from a 501c3 state-recognized church, right? And the whole idea is, is when we began to take continued positions and postures of God's truth and we proclaim them, uh, we will, as Jesus said, be more and more hated by the world. And so what's the first thing that the unbelieving pagan authorities like to do? They like to come after your pocketbook. And so, you know, you got churches that are recognized by the state, 5013, not, uh, uh, non-for-profit organizations who own these buildings. They've, be, they've received government money, so forth and so on. And the first thing they did with John MacArthur, not that long ago, first thing they do is they come after your money. And that's why a lot of churches began to think, you know what? The church doesn't need to own anything. Why? Because we're only men. We're but men. We can get up here and talk the talk all we want, but when you've got $80,000 sitting in the bank and you've got multi-million dollar campuses all around and when the heat's turned up, guess what men, even the best men, begin to do, brothers and sisters? They begin to think, what if we lose all of this? Why? I mean, we can't lose all of this, don't they? And that's why many churches begin to structure themselves saying, we don't own anything. Come and take whatever you want. We're not afraid. We're not going to be quiet. We're not going to stop saying what we're going to say. You can have it all because that's not the kingdom of God. Buildings and bank accounts. The kingdom of God is us. Amen. Amen? Well, understanding this potential temptation that could come upon them, he understood that they needed to understand to live with contentment. And so he goes on here in the text and he says, let your conversation not only be without the love of money, but here's the command, be content with the things that you have. Now, contentment is the opposite of covetousness. Simply meaning that the love of wealth and material things cannot coexist in the same heart where there is true contentment. Why is that? Well, by definition, a covetous man, he's always dissatisfied. He's never content with the present state of his possessions. His heart is set on having more and more and more. And sadly, what he doesn't realize is that more possessions will never give him the satisfaction that he's yearning for. It's evasive. It's elusive satisfaction through possessions. As I was studying through this, I come across this definition that I've shared with you in your notes. And I, I think it's the best definition. This hits it right on the head. Notice with me how Jeremiah Burroughs in a book, if you can get it, get a hold of it. Um, <laughs> The, the, I, I laugh because, you know, just as the Bible probes, the Puritans had this wonderful way to take a dull knife. If, if God's word is described as a sword, you know, that, that cuts asunder. The Puritans had this way of like 
sharpening that knife to give it its most sharpest edge to really do the surgery in our hearts that it needs to do. That's why I was kind of chuckling there because Jeremiah Burroughs really does that in this book. Notice what he says. He defines contentment. The one that I think is in mind here in verse number five. The contentment here that we're uh, commanded to have. It is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Okay, there's the frame of mind, the inward part. Now notice the action. Which freely submits, that's the first thing, to and delights in, that's the hard part, it freely submits to, but then delights in, God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Ouch. That's hard. That's hard to swallow. Biblical contentment, in the context we're talking about today, it's financial persecution, it's a loss of possessions, is freely to submit to something that's outside of my control. I cannot control what the persecutors are going to do. But then I delight in that somehow or another, this is going to be for my good and I'm going to be okay. That's the delight part. Christian contentment we see from this definition, isn't it? It's a peacefulness. It's a settledness of our hearts. Brothers and sisters, no matter what may happen, to continue on the rest of our days, if it be God's will. In the context of our verse, it is talking about loss of material possessions and wealth. But this could be applied in many ways. Could it be a health issue? Could it be a difficult relationship issue? Etc., etc. In so much as it's outside of my control, I am content. I have a true peacefulness of heart that it will not dominate me. It will not rob me of the joy I have in Christ. It will not steal and take away from me the truth of the yes and amen of what beholds in the future for me as one of God's children. I will be truly content. And when you get a hold of that type of contentment, it's a great aid through the rest of your journey on this side of glory. Look at the eight things that Burroughs says this type of contentment opposes and will help you oppose. True contentment opposes murmuring and this old English word repining. What's repining mean? Well, wishing discontentedly with providence. You know how it goes. Oh, you know, I wish things could be different. I, I, I wish, you know, this didn't happen. I wish that didn't happen. You're, you're, it's remote and it's, it's pining over things, the spilt milk. Right? And it just kind of, you can't let it go. You just can't move on. Okay, well, contentment will help you oppose that type of thing, which can really damage your life. Notice, secondly, what it opposes a vexed spirit, or we could say an agitated spirit. This is the next step beyond murmuring and pining. It's, it begins to fret, um, it begins to be concerned, overly concerned, not just murmuring. Well, Christian contentment will help calm that agitated spirit. Because if God's true, and indeed He is, we're going to see in a moment, His promises are true, your soul, your spirit becomes content with whatever is going on at the current moment. Thirdly, it prevents us from having a tumultuous life, a tumultuous thought life. You know, that manifests itself when you're pining on things and things aren't going the way you go. What do you say oftentimes? Oh no, what am I going to do? Oh no, how can this be fixed? Oh no, my whole life is ruined. Oh now, th oh, this, this, and this. No, contentment prevents and it, it opposes that. Now we're really seeing, as Burroughs is applying it, why this is so applicable in this point of the letter to the Hebrews who were suffering persecution and the loss of things, right? Because imagine even the best of us, we begin to wrestle with these thoughts and these doubts and these internal struggles, even as God's people. It opposes an unsettled, an unstable spirit. Because when someone has the vexed, agitated spirit, they're consumed with tumultuous thoughts, their spirit is unstable. And when a spirit's unstable, guess what happens? You collapse in and up on top of yourself. The whole world is just about my problem. I can't think outside of my own problem. I can't. I get tunnel vision, you know? But God's called us to sacrificially, we've already seen in the epistle, the epistle to love the brethren, to serve one another. 
You know, God has great purposes for your life. They're glorious. They're fulfilling purposes. But if you collapse in on yourself when something happens and you don't have this biblical contentment, it will control you in your entire life. It will be that dark cloud that hovers over you forever, potentially. It prevents us from heart-consuming cares, especially those that give us anxiety about the future. Oh, what if this? What if that? Now that this has happened, what about that? It prevents us and it opposes sinking discouragements when our expectations aren't met. And many times in the Christian life, our expectations, no matter how hard we try, whether it be in ministry, whether it be in reconciliation of relationships, no matter what it is, our expectations are often not met. Well, contentment prevents you from becoming, what, sulky and discouraged because I'm going to do what I can do and the rest is in God's hands. That's the attitude that biblical contentment gives you. But I'm going to jump down to number eight. Uh, desperate, it, it opposes desperate, desperate risings of the heart against God by way of rebellion. And you see in number seven, it prevents us from taking things and matters in our own hands. Now I'm going to do things to relieve this stuff that's causing discontentment and this persecution. I, I'm going to make a decision. and just I, I know it's just not exactly how I ought to do it, but it's just a little bit of a corner. I'm going to shave off the, the, you know, the sharpness of the law just a little bit because I've got to get this off my back. Contentment opposes such thinking. But notice in your notes, I believe I gave it to you, what contentment doesn't oppose. If those are some things that contentment opposes, it does not oppose a legitimate sense and awareness of when we are afflicted in the face of real trials and tribulations. Dear Christians, I say that because it would be wrong to think that you're guilty of the sin of discontentment if you express a real felt pain and sorrow in your life. If you do so, it's not a betrayal of God's sovereignty over life. If you express a real legitimate pain in your life, you're not guilty of denying the sovereignty of God. If this was the case, if every time you expressed, you know, this is really happening in my life and I need some prayer, oh God, would you bring me relief, Lord? I don't know how long I can, I can stand the, the, the tumultuous burden of this providence that's upon me right now crying out to your your heart like that to your lord under difficult situations it's not an expressment of sinful discontentment if that because if it was we would have to take half of the book of psalms right especially from king david and shred them because that's what half of the books of psalms are saying and that's why they're so popular because they meet us where we're at don't they so biblical contentment doesn't oppose you coming to god and sharing the true afflictions and the trials in your life, but it does oppose them controlling you and keeping you locked in an iron cage of discontentment and fear. Secondly, biblical contentment that we're talking about, it's not opposed to making known in an orderly manner our need to God and our family and friends. You're not expressing discontentment if you come to God and ask God for relief under financial or perplexing situations in your life. Contentment's not opposed to using God-given lawful means to be delivered from such unpleasant circumstances. If something happens, and it's, a, you know, it's providence, actually, uh, obviously it's in my life. Well, if I begin to remedy the problem, no one can look at me and say, Look, he's just not content to sit there and waller in that difficult providence that's come to his life. Look at him. He's just trying to get over it and trying to rebuild things. Oh, he hasn't learned to be content in that state of misery where God's put him. <laughs> that's not the case. It's not the case at all. I like how John Owen points this out, this third point of what Christian commitment does not oppose or it does not forbid. It does not forbid righteous ambition or industrious labor with the goal or an end to better our own situation. And when we better our own situation, we're in a position to help others in their time of need. Contentment doesn't mean that you don't use lawful, God-given means and be ambitious and industrious to better your station in life in so much as your life isn't consumed and loved by these things, which places you then in a position to help others around you. Just trying to clarify what biblical contentment doesn't oppose. Now I hope you'd agree with me that when I observe 
that the thrust of this command to be content with what we have is because he very well knew that their material wealth and possessions could be stolen or destroyed very soon through persecution. And where there was any root of discontentment over such inconveniences, there would be a fertile soil for the seeds of apostasy to begin to germinate in their lives. This apostle wanted them. He wants us to rest under the providence of God with true peace and contentment no matter what happens, whether it's with our material stuff or whether it's with our life. And he wants us to take a deep breath and with confidence and assurance sing what we just sung, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Brothers and sisters, if any of us have any hope of finishing this race that God's called us to, we had better foster, grab hold of, and maintain true biblical contentment. Because discontentment is the fertile soil that can lead to doubt, discouragement, and eventually, yes, to those who profess, I'm not saying it's an inward reality, to apostasy. Now, at this point in our text, God, the Almighty Creator, who is the ultimate authority over all of His creation, could have just put a period right here in verse 5, right? He could have just said right there, let your conversations be without, let your lives be without the love of money and be content with what you have, period. All but our loving, covenant-keeping God. He doesn't come at us with a cracked whip. No, what's He do? He points us to the promise to motivate us to see the wisdom that he is displaying in this exhortation and this command. And this is the latter part of the verse. He says, let your lifestyle or conversation be without the love of money and be content with such things you have for, there's that primary particle in the English language says this is why we do something, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Why should we flee the elusive temptation of covetousness and love of money? Why should we not fret or be anxious regarding the current providence in our lives? Because he has, because we have a promise from God that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's why. That's why. As you see in your notes, this promise is found repeatedly throughout the scriptures. Joshua 1.5, Genesis 28, Deuteronomy 31, 1 Chronicles 28, Isaiah 41. And it seems to be a constant theme throughout the Bible that when God's people need a refreshing reminder of the certainty of their outcome during difficult situations, they come back to this promise. And oh dear saints, while we certainly cannot be sure, amen, that all of our fellow man will be there for us, I hope that all of us in here this morning who have been to the foot of Calvary will certainly say, I can be sure that my Lord Jesus will be there for me when I need Him. Do we need to be reminded of Numbers 23 where the Word of God says, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should prevent, uh, repent, as He said, and will He not do? He will do. Every single promise. As to our material things, listen closely, because that's the context we're really in. God is committed. He will always be committed to exercising His sovereignty as the Creator upon your behalf in that He will provide all that you need. But He is not required to give you or I all that we want. Amen? In all of His ability as the Creator, Dear Christian, he will always exercise that to give you what you need, but not always what you want. And how many of us in here are parents? We've got to come back to that definition from time to time with our kids. There are needs <laughs> and there are wants, right? And we got to do that. That's what God does. I will, I will be there for you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't you? Why, why are you fretting? Why are you pining? Why are you discouraged? Why are you this? Why are you, why are you, why are you all like that? It's because of the weakness of faith. The weakness of faith. Oh, I wish we had time to go to Matthew 6, 24, 33. You see it in your notes. I wanted to go there so bad where Jesus told the disciples. All right, I got permission. We're going. Let's fly over to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. I'm there. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I sometimes wonder if those sermon notes are really helping. All right, Matthew 6. Here we go. 
Look at Matthew 6, 24 through 33. This, this beautiful, really putting flesh on the bones of what I just said, that God in His power, you know, He will always give us what we need. Not necessarily all our wants. And that's what Jesus, the only way that Jesus, the only, the only way that it could masterfully be said is by our Lord, the greatest preacher that ever lived by Jesus. Listen, he, He's going to say what I just said, but in a much more beautiful way. He says, beginning with verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and money. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life. Will you hear that? That's what, we're, that's what we're learning about. Jesus says, take no thought for your life, what ye will eat or what ye will drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on it. Is not the life more than meat? Is not life more than meat? and the body than raiment. Behold, look at the fowls. Now use this object lesson. Just a masterful uh, illustrator Jesus was in his preaching. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought, there's that anxiety, that discontentment can add one cubit unto his stature. And why take you thought of thy raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even as Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these, wherefore if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe ye, O ye of little faith? Therefore, there's the application. Don't take any thought. Take no thought saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all, these are the things do the Gentiles seek. You see, they're caught up with that anxiety. For your heavenly Father knows that ye have need for all these things. And He does, beloved. But seek ye first. Here's the spiritual aspect that must be preeminent in our inward thinking, calming, our souls, and also living out in our lives. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things shall be added to you. Just a side comment, what were those things? The necessities, the basics, right? They will be given to you. He will always make sure you have what you need, church. Take therefore no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I was telling my wife this week, when I'm in passages like this, they serve as a great calibrator for me. I think, and I think it's particularly some of our personalities that can be unique to how just God has made us and wired us. Some of us, I will be the transparent one and say, sometimes I feel as though I live more in the future than I do in the present. Can any of you sympathize with that? And I think sometimes our culture here in the West the way especially men are geared to thinking about their careers and things like this and how they're going to end their careers, it, it kind of gets us in that trap. And the next thing you know, before you realize it, you're not even smelling the lilies. You know? And Jesus is, Jesus, again, the, the, the prohibition is not to think about the future. That's a biblical commandment and principle. To prepare for the future. Be prepared and, and you, it's okay to better yourself. But oh, don't get consumed with it to where you miss the present responsibilities and opportunities, relationships God's given us. Opportunities to, to love others and to serve others and to be the light and the salt of the world all around us. Well, the bright response to such a promise as we have here in the last part of verse 5 comes, you see, in verse number 6, moving us along here in our message. It is confession. We have an exhortation, a command, this promise. Notice there's a response to this promise. Verse 6, So that we boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. This is a citation you see in your notes from Psalms 118, verse 6. And what we have here is the appropriate response to such a beautiful and glorious promise. It's the response of faith. Is this your response to such a promise? The Lord promises He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you respond this way in faith? The Lord is my helper, therefore I'm not going to fear what man shall do unto me. 
God's promise, His presence and His assistance. Oh, this is what is promised here. Our persecutors, indeed, we know very little of it here in the West. We may grow to know more. That's God's business. He knows what's in store. But our persecutors can and may indeed someday take all of our possessions, beloved. They may even throw us into prison cells. And as Luther said, they may even kill our bodies, but they can never touch what is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen? They never. In the face of such terror, if it befalls us in our day, let us boldly stand as we sung in our first hymn. The word above all earthly powers is given to us. No thanks to them. It abides. The spirit and the gift are ours. Through him who with us sideth, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Forever. I still believe that. Do you still believe that? Good. Because when the persecution comes, maybe in Naomi's generation, you have to remember this. Don't let your physical eyes get bogged down in just this reality. God's kingdom will reign forever. And He will use the testimony of the martyrs, those who are willing to lose it all for the glory and the power of Christ's name to be that which pricks the heart of the Roman centurion that put Christ on the cross. That's how God does it. Are you willing to lose all, friend? That's the whole point of this passage today. Or, or rather, does the love of wealth and possessions have a root in your heart to where you would be the one, if the rubber met the road, you would compromise in order to secure it? A concluding thought here before leaving the subject of Christian contentment, I just want to say that the Bible teaches that the essence of a fulfilling life is not to be found in our possessions or our material things, but a right relationship with our covenant God who gives us such promises. If any of us in this room, I don't think there's any, but if any of us who may be here or listening to this message seeks contentment in the things of this world, you will seek that contentment in vain. Mark 8.36, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The truth of the matter is, even if that man were to gain the whole world, you know what? If he didn't have the contentment we're talking about today, if he had that love of money in his heart, he'd want another world, and then another one, and another one. Dear Christian, in Christ, you, I, we've been given everything. Let us live in that reality. And never allow the trials, no matter what they may be, to rob you of the promise that you have from God through Jesus Christ. Remember the cross. Remember the price that Christ paid for your eternal salvation because this will serve to quiet all discontentment as our Heavenly Father prepares us through providence to someday be with Him forever in eternal bliss. On my worst day in providence, when I look to the cross and I see how little I really deserve, it remedies all discontentment. Amen? Go back again and again to Matthew, the last book of the last chapter of Matthew. Read again and over and over again the great passion of Christ, and you will very effectively quiet any discontentment because you'll see I'm a sinner who didn't deserve anything, who's been saved by this wonderful grace. Oh God, what can I say to such a wonderful salvation? You have given me more than I ever could ever want or anything that I could ever deserve. And then to put it right in check, won't it? Let us close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, O God, we come before You. And Lord, by examining the exhortation, the command, the promise, and also the confession that these verses have held forth, Lord, it has reminded us of truly something that is precious, and so effectual about one of your attributes, Lord, and that is your love and your fidelity, your covenant fidelity to your people. You have told us, O oh God, and you have prepared us that there may be very difficult trials in our lives. And Lord, you do not shrink back as a loving Heavenly Father to warn us and to command us 
to Lord not be so entangled with materialistic earthly possessions that God we lose our focus of our true purpose here in this life and Lord you point us to quiet our fears and our anxiety when perhaps circumstances may arrive uh, arise and threaten Lord all that we've worked hard for all that we prepared for you have given us this blessed promise to quiet our souls and our anxiety you will never leave us you will never forsake us you and you alone are our helper we confess this Lord, we, 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 we welcome and we live in that reality. Help us, I pray, in our times of weakness. We confess to you, Lord, our sin. We confess to you even at this moment that we do not always live this out perfectly. But this is why you give us your revelation. It meets us where we are at. It puts the checks and balances in our thinking and in our living. And oh God, we ask that you would help us move forward to take to heart everything that we've considered today and put Christ and His calling in our life above all things, which includes how we are using our finances. Father, thank You. We bless You in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.